Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. Mario Andretti joins us to look back at his long career on both sides of the Atlantic. Welcome to Indianapolis Motor Speedway for another edition of the Autosport Podcast. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport, and we're going to have a little bit of a look forward to the 101st Indianapolis 500 and also a little bit of a look back with a legend of IndyCar racing and uh, an Indianapolis 500 winner, Mario Andretti. Now, Mario, I'm just going to have to read some of your stats at you. 29 500s, 556 laps led, three poles, only one win. Yeah, you know what's interesting, actually, Ed, that... Um uh, I was a rookie in 65 and, uh, you know, obviously I had to finish the race to be a rookie. We finished a nice third place. And then 66, 67, I was on pole. There I could have had probably the two of the easiest uh, wins in my career because in 66, uh, Jim Clark was on front row with me. And uh, pretty much at the start, I lost uh, the cylinder. So I ran three laps on seven cylinders. He couldn't get by me. So you can imagine if everything was working right, you know, I had the car. In 67, lost the wheel, lost the wheel, and then I was parked on the back, so that was the end of it. In 68, the engine burned up on the first lap. 
69 should have never finished, and I finished and I won it, you know. And I dominated this race more than four-time winners have. You know, even 87, uh, you look at the record, I was quickest every single day of practice on pole. I even won the pissed-up competition. I was with Adrian Newing as my engineer. And uh, we led every lap until we broke a, a valve spring. And we were a lap in the lead at that point, 23 laps to go. Looking at the laps that I led, I feel that I got quite a bit of satisfaction. Anyway, you know, I wasn't all black. And uh, I dodged many bullets here, so that's not bad luck. Just one of those things as far as winning. Uh, many people have the fortune of... Uh, of winning even at 136 miles an hour crossing the line like, uh, you know, Alessandro Rossi did last year. So there are many ways that um, you can uh, put value on this. But um, overall, I feel that they knew I was here until, uh, you know, I, I decided to, to leave it. So, And then the family continuing, you know. So Michael is another one that dominated this race. I mean, uh, you look at his record and he could never put it together. He won Michigan 500 like what, four or five times or something. Uh, just, I don't know how do you, you know, quantify that. Uh, but um, again, we're still in it. Third generation going. Uh, Michael's strong with his team. And, uh, you know, Michael as an owner won it four times. So at least he's getting some revenge back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's bring in David Malsher, Autosports IndyCar correspondent. Can you believe that you're sitting next to a guy who was so quick here for so long. It seems ridiculous that Mario only won here, won here once. It just doesn't seem possible. I'm also thinking about the ones that he very politely didn't mention, like 81, where Bobby passed half the field coming out of the pits. It's my 81 ring. Well, right now, Mario is showing me his 81 winner's ring because he did get awarded the trophy uh, the day after. Then many months later, it got uh, rescinded and uh, the win was given back to Bobby Unser. It's a debate that will go on forever, but just go onto YouTube and uh, look at the footage of that. And then uh, 82, he had a strong car there and was uh, taken out at the start. Poor Kevin Cogan, he managed to wipe out the two most famous names on the grid <laughs> in one hit. So that was the end of both Mario and uh, Mr. Foyt. There's an insane amount of laps led for very little reward. Thank God he did get at least Oh, we one. got lap money. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those were the days. I mean, I think it's Michael that said, why the hell could it never work out for me? And yet we won Toronto seven times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just bizarre, truly bizarre. Well, we'll come back to a few of the, the past races here for, uh, from you, Mario, but let's just have a little bit of a look at 2017. Obviously, the big story, certainly in Europe, and actually the big story here is Fernando Alonso. Uh, obviously, you're close. It's very a big close. story everywhere. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Indy should always be the biggest story, but it makes it even bigger, doesn't it? Obviously, you're very close through. He's running for Michael's team, so you've been you've been there and involved and offering a little bit of advice. Uh, and of course, we should also add you're still you're still active here. You've just been lapping in the uh, lapping in the two seater, so uh, you're still sort of current, so to speak. But what do you make of what we've seen from Fernando Alonso qualifying fifth? Seems pretty remarkable. What have you seen? Well, I've seen uh, a lot of good things that uh, uh, are not surprising me at all because um, I saw it from the beginning. Uh, I was here for the initial test that he had uh, just a week before official practice. 
the first thing that I noticed, she was very calm, collected, and confident because he knew that uh, uh, he had a good feel. You know, obviously, we were told that he's going to be with a team that has, you know, basic setups. And that in itself, like coming here for the first time, he did some uh, sim work, you know, which is good, gives you a pretty good feel. But uh, uh, Marco goes out there and, and does, you know, first lap at 222 in his car. So he knew it was in it. So he knew that the car, he didn't have to search for anything. All he has to do is just go by the feel. And uh, the only advice that I had to him, I said, just trust your butt. And uh, that's what every race driver should do. And uh, every race driver recognizes the good, the bad, and the ugly of a racing car. But immediately, what I was impressed more than anything, immediately it was perfect on the line. Tell you what, not everybody is. It's very noticeable. And I see, I said, you know, he's getting everything out of the track. And that in itself is really a big plus. So, uh, and that's a comfort level as well because you can see, you know, immediately is ambiented, you know, he's, he's right in there. And he progressed so nicely, you know, he's right there with the rest of them, uh, different times even quicker than, than, the, than the five of them. And uh, not intimidated at all by traffic because uh, uh, he has so many laps under his belt already. He probably has at least one and a half race under his belt. He was here uh, during the first, the worst day uh, when it was really windy, and I commend him for that because uh, it's a driver's choice, and uh, you don't learn anything about chassis, but he wanted to learn about what to do, you know, in conditions like that, and more than half the field didn't even come out. Some came out and went back in and back and forth. So, so he he has come here to do the job not just to ride, not just to satisfy something. His mindset is to win. And and that's the mindset you should have no matter where you go as a champion because if you don't have that, if you start uh, analyzing the situation, well, you know, maybe I think uh, here, uh, you know, I don't have a really a real shot at it. If you go with that, you know, you're already lost. So he's coming here again to do the job and to get maximum satisfaction out of it. And quite honestly, I think uh, he has every reason, you know, to feel that confidence, uh, every reason. I would not have been surprised if he would have got on pole. Do you think he can win the race? Obviously he can, he's quick enough. But I mean, when it comes down to it, the last dash to the flag at the end, all the tricks that these seriously good drivers have learned and mastered over the years. Is, is that possible that his, his racing instinct, just that accumulated knowledge from other forms of racing, can that see him through? Well, he just said something that, you know, it's about experience. He's been in traffic. He is, you know, he's not timid of uh, high speed. Uh, obviously, I watched him here uh, just doing, you know, some race practice uh, uh, among four, five, ten, twelve cars. And uh, he's not bashful. He's not timid about going in a corner right on the other guy's gearbox. And, and that's something not every driver is capable of doing or is willing to do. So, uh, and he's not stupid about it either, you know. So he's, he's really, uh, he's out there to compete in earnest. Again, we'll see how the race goes. Obviously, uh, when you're practicing cars around, everybody's very kind to you because they, they are, you know. 
the situation is going to be a little bit different, uh, you know, once you're in competition. But uh, at the same time, uh, he seemed like he's very capable of mixing it up, being, you know, that nothing, I think, startled him. I think by doing so much running, he's also getting uh, used to the, the spotter situation, having someone uh, in your ear all the time, which is uh, nor- not normal, obviously, certainly not in Formula One. It's something that, it's a phenomenon that got started here, I think, uh, when the IRL was running or something, and and it's very common practice in NASCAR. I think it's a good safety feature, you know, but there's something to get used to also with someone always, you know, maybe uh, giving a, maybe even too much of a information load, if you will. Uh, but um, but he, he's comfortable with that. I even asked him a question of that, uh, that's bothering him and uh, it was sad because you can tell the guy to maybe just you know just keep it at a minimum and he just seemed to uh to be bothered by it so uh there're not too many things that are actually um uh seem to you know to be uh annoying if you will he already i think justified the effort to leave monaco which is huge you know but at the same time if he was anywhere in the points even even now, if he would have scored even a point, he would not have left it, you know. So McLaren, as a group, they're, uh, they want to keep him happy. So they're obviously behind him on, on this particular venture, which is also very helpful. Uh, it would not be very helpful if uh, all of a sudden, and I had this issue myself, you know, that I always had to convince somebody, you know, to say, you know, I'm going to do it. But uh, he's got support f- from all over. I think um, Sheikh Mohammed was here qualifying, and Mansoor Ojai, uh, and of course, uh, Zach Brown. And here's the other thing, too, that you need to take notice, that uh, it's Michael's clear policy of an open book. You know, you have six drivers. Uh, you can look at the worksheet of every single driver, everything that's going on, setups and everything. Now, if you don't think that's a luxury, <laughs> that's a luxury, believe me, especially for someone here for the first time. And I think Michael's philosophy is that uh, strength is in numbers, you know, and he doesn't really favor anybody, certainly not his own son. So that's the way the team functions. So anyone coming in, and you saw that Kurt Busch, for instance, you know, he never drove a single-seater, ovals, but never a single-seater, and uh, he took to it like a duck to water, and he did a very respectable sixth-place finish. And it wasn't just by strategy, you know, he, he was there. So um, I think he played it very smart, Kirk did. He stayed about midfield uh, most of the race. And, uh, you know, he, and then he felt comfortable to just start pushing, and, um, and there he went. So I think, um, barring mistakes, Fernando is uh, shooing for a top five. I really do. And, and you never know. And just to bring you in on this, David, how positive do you think it is for Fernando that he's got all this might behind him? Yeah, I mean, I, I know Gilles was uh, worried initially that they almost might be, you know, flooding him with intelligence because with that much driving talent, if one of them disagrees with the other, <laughs> it could be could put uh, Fernando in an awkward situation. But the thing is, he's from everything I've read, he's a deeply intelligent guy and he can process these things and whittle, whittle away at, the amount of knowledge he's gleaning and sharpen it into something, you know, a, a tool whereby he can attack the race exactly as he's supposed to do. 
he will use every resource available uh, within Andretti Autosport. He will look at everyone's data. You only need to look at Marco's driving style around here compared to Takuma's or a rookie's like Jack Harvey to see that there are different ways around the speedway. And, um, you know, they're all going to have very different data from each other. I mean, Takuma almost crashed five times on his qualifying run, but kept it pointed straight ahead. And, uh, you know, his I'm sure his traces look very different from Ryan's or Marco's, but there's something to be taken from from all of that. It's going to be amazing how he approaches 300,000 people in the grandstands on, on race day, but, you know, he's driven for high stakes before. He's driven in front of his deeply, deeply passionate home crowd. You know, he's driven for championship titles in revolting wet conditions that you wouldn't normally go out in. Like I say, he has the intimidation factor under control. Let's look a little bit back at your victory, Mario, in in 69. Obviously, the build-up to that race wasn't exactly as hoped, was it? You weren't even in the car you were meant to be in. Well, indeed, actually, uh, as you said, uh, a lot of things uh, uh, started out just uh, phenomenal. I had a, with the Lotus um, uh, four-wheel drive, which was derivative of the turbine chassis only with, uh, you know, Ford chem engine, uh, and some new aerodynamics, which was quite nice, uh, and obviously I had some downforce, and uh, my corner speed uh, was uh, like they had never seen before. And uh, we were breaking records uh, every day in practice, you know, and uh, I felt good about certain things. Uh, We had some other issues like uh, terribly overheating gearbox right behind uh, um, the driver's seat. There were a lot of things that uh, obviously the car was never tested before. I just arrived here, just brand new, just finished. But the bigger issues were... Obviously, uh, some of the suspension components were under-designed, and there were some failures, even on Collins' team cars, and then uh, my failure two, la- two days before qualifying. The fact that that year, the first weekend was rained out, so we had just a one weekend left. So on a Thursday, you know, during practice, normal practice, uh, right rear wheel just sheared right off the hub in turn four, and I crashed and, you know, fire and all that sort of thing. So the car was just totaled. Uh, I don't know how I got away with it the way I did, but I was okay. Uh, just have some burns on my face. And then, of course, we had to just pull out the, the spare car, which I was not intended to race here at all. It was the new Bronner Hawk, but uh, it was sort of a derivative of uh, Lotus chassis with the Brabham suspension geometry type of thing which I, I thought it was something that I I liked I didn't like the offset the lotus I didn't I didn't quite understand the setting of that so I had good knowledge of the Brabham setup so there was like the previous the 66 65 66 67 chassis only monocoque and with that suspension and actually I liked the car I had I just won uh, the race just before here in Hanford California and uh, anyway, long and the short, I put that car in the front row, so uh, it wasn't all bad. And uh, must have surprised you that pace to be so close to to Foyt's time. Well, I, I was surprised that I, that we were that we were able to put it in the front row. Quite honestly, because uh, what did I, I didn't have much practice, and uh, there were I, I had just a feel of the other car with me, and and I didn't know exactly 
what to do, you know, to, to really uh, improve the situation. We were just thrown in there, you know, and uh, front row was okay. And the start, you know, we were fine, but then I started overheating very badly. So I sort of eased out a bit and uh, let AJ go by and then McCluskey, I think. Uh, but I always stay like within, you know, no, I don't think I was ever worse than me, maybe fourth, but I was. Uh, and then the thing just kept going and I figured, well, we just keep going, you know. That's it. All of a sudden, uh, uh, we're approaching the end, and uh, one of my main competitors was uh, Lloyd Ruby, but I had him handled for sure, you know, I felt. And uh, ultimately, I don't know if I had to really push the car much harder. Uh, we had um, we found out at the end that the gearbox was just about ready to explode. Uh, it was all, the oil just all totally dried up, and uh, I was feeling, you know, the just roughness and, and I feel why I here again, but you know what? Dan Gurney, I had over a lap on Dan Gurney, almost two laps on him. So I figured I'm just staying there and bring it home and uh, it lasted, you know. But uh, the satisfaction from that standpoint, it was not only winning, which is, uh, you know, it's like the proverbial 900-pound gorilla lift all, lifted all your shoulders because uh, somehow you feel you have to win this doggone race because... Uh, your career, you know, is, you know, <laughs> they look at your career, you know, it's not complete unless unless you, know, you win this doggone thing. And uh, and so it's unfair. But uh, for Granatelli, I thought it was really great to see that he finally, with all the efforts uh, that he's made over the years with the Novi's, with the turbine cars and coming close with turbine cars, and all of a sudden we win with a very standard car. But um, it was very sweet, you know, to, to win for him, quite honestly. And um, and quite honestly, I, that, was, that was the only second race that I had uh, finished, second 500 in five of them. And I figured, well, you know, God willing, you know, I think I'm going to score quite a few more, you know. But uh, there it was, you know, that was the only one. There was such a big span to your 500s. I was looking at the pole times. For your first 500, the pole time was a 161. For your last 500 in 94, the pole time was a 228, which is just in terms of pure speed, let alone the technology the, that you're dealing with, it's transformative. And you were able to be competitive throughout that period. I think in 93, you led most laps. So it wasn't like you were just coming back to finish 15th, wasn't it, in the latter years? You were you were always thereabouts. So how, how did you manage to adapt so much? And how just how different is it if you can kind of jump from... 65 to, to 94 in terms of what you were dealing with i feel fortunate that i've had uh, the opportunity to progress over those decades because uh, as you can see you know in the early in the mid 60s there was a transition from the roadster to uh the rear engine cars you know in modern times let's call it modern times and in 64 and part of early 65 i drove a roadster so i you know i I'm so fortunate that I can tell that story, that I had that experience. And then the other part is that um, in 65, especially uh, in those years, there was this so-called tire war between Firestone and Goodyear, and it was a a marvelous opportunity for drivers, like myself especially, uh, being new at this level, to have the opportunity to do so much testing. You know, there's nothing better than experience and um, and putting laps under your belt. So 
all of that testing obviously got the maximum you know i was able to get the maximum out of cars but we were seeing just progress and i was part of that progress with the cars the um, mechanical side and then the aerodynamic side and and all and, and all of those elements so uh went from normally aspirated to turbo and uh just to have had that experience and as a driver all you do i mean your job is just to take 100% out of what is under you uh this is why you know people i don't know if the purest of the cynics they they always say well you know uh, in those days those were the champions this and that and i always say that uh yesterday's champions would be champions today and vice versa because uh it's just it, race drivers have one feel and when it feels right you know you just if the limit is greater you take it to that limit you go by that feel and uh this is something that i experienced even by going to the other disciplines you know because you got a different animal under you but the feel that you're looking for as a driver is pretty much the same and this is the other thing that I, I told Fernando. I said, you know something? Okay, you know that. You've driven different cars, you know, but uh, I said, don't forget the feel and trust it. Just trust your feel. If it feels right, you will go fast. If it doesn't, you don't go fast. So, again, get back to what you said as far as uh, the progress that we have seen, the dynamics of the racing car. It's all about, um, you know, looking forward to something better. What kept me motivated, you know, even throughout, throughout my career is the fact that every year we had a new car, you know, and uh, you're like an expecting father, you know, you wait. And because uh, obviously the, the hope is obviously that it's going to be better. You know, we experienced something. Now, the new child wasn't always... Uh, didn't always have, uh, you know, sometimes a cross-eyed, sometimes a, a shorter leg and all that, you know. But uh, still, there was something new to develop, something to look forward to. And uh, and I love that part of it. Quite honestly, you know, like uh, by today's standards with, uh, you know, with this uh, spec systems on the cars, uh, you almost get a little bit bored, you know, if you will. But uh, at the same time, you know. Uh, I like that side of it. I like that uh, the development side of, of it. Uh, always to looking forward to something better. Now, David, from your perspective, Mario's just made that sound very simple, <laughs> being able to be so good for so long. But I think probably we need a mere mortal to put that into context. Yeah, I think wasn't your pole time at Michigan, wasn't it, a closed course speed record? 1993, uh, 234.7, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I read... I wish to God I could remember the precise statistic, but over the course of uh, Mario's career, the distance between what you can see and the furthest furthest point you can see, sorry, and when you'll arrive there, went from uh, around the speedway, went from 3.3 seconds down to 1.9. I mean, the thing is, Mario was never foolish enough to make as many comebacks as Frank Sinatra or anything. He kept in the game, and I think you adapt, which is the same reason why... Uh, Mario set pole position for his first ever Formula One race and his penultimate one. And if you look at the difference between the Lotus 49 and the Ferrari 126C2B, is I mean, it's just phenomenal. And also the power delivery, you know, uh, is phenomenal. But he kept his hand in the game. He had only quit uh, Alfa Romeo at the end of 81. So, yeah, he still had all the Formula One knowledge. And, yeah, I, th I think that's what makes Mario 
unique. I know there's Brits out there that would argue that uh, Sterling Moss was uh, had the versatility of uh, Mario, and I know there's Americans out here who would say that uh, you know Foyt or a Parnelli, uh, Parnelli in particular, had the versatility of Mario, but they didn't have the versatility over such an elongated period of time. Well, we actually recently had an issue about the great all-rounders in motorsport in which the editor of the magazine, Kevin Turner, argued that Sterling Moss was the greatest all-rounder. Uh, I argued that Mario was. And to be honest, with the uh, the ammunition that Mario's career gave me, I, I think I won that one pretty easily. But there was a word you used there, David, comeback. Now, there was a, a kind of comeback, and this has always fascinated me. Uh, this was oh, when no. I was quite early in my journalistic career, obviously just watching from in Europe. And I was seeing in the news... In 2003, Mario Andretti having a horrific accident at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Obviously, you were you were filling in, as it were, and I think it was Tony Canaan's car uh, doing some running. There was talk of you maybe qualifying the car. You're you're turning some good speeds, and then you're you're catapulting through the air. So tell us about how that happened. Actually, it was a good day. Everything was going as planned. Uh, I worked with the car uh, quite nicely, you know, by myself to work it up to speed, you know. I'd, I think I ran somewhere around 225 by myself. And two, and uh, then I wanted to put a big number on the board just to feel good. I always liked that, quite honestly. <laughs> you know, I was always, I says, you know, every practice period, I said, somebody has to be at the top of the sheets. Might as well be me. You know? So I always, I used to drive my engineers crazy sometimes. Uh, new set of tires, light load, and I'm going. So... 10 minutes, uh, 5 minutes uh, to 6 o'clock to the finish. And uh, and I was getting a perfect toe from uh, uh, Kenny Brack. And going into one, he exploded his engine and crashed quite heavily. And they had just installed a safe barrier. There's some wedge uh, units that go, you know, between the opening there. One of them slipped out and... And, and it went into the middle of the track. And I'm coming through, and my telemetry showed two, 222 miles an hour at the exit, turn one. And, you know, there were bits all over the place because you got no warning, you know. And uh, so I hit that white thing, and obviously that dislodged the car. And I figured, oh, my gosh. I mean, I thought I was going up on the suites, you know. And uh, so I kind of pulled it twice. And luckily, it landed on wheels, on the wheels, you know. But uh, that was really, uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was terrible to end a day like that. But uh, you know, it's one of those things that um, happened. And again, uh, that's why I say that uh, it's not all bad luck here for me. <laughs> it was a that was a good luck day for me. My favorite quote was that Michael being interviewed afterwards, and uh, what did your dad say to you after? He said, "Don't tell mom." <laughs> yeah, my my wife was uh, was down in Florida and she saw it on CNN before I was able to talk to her. So, well, anyway, but she's used to that. So. <laughs> Not after you've retired, though. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Jesus. We could have lost a legend. Had that not happened, the way things were going, obviously the plan was for you to qualify the car. Was there any chance of you getting back out in the race? Or was oh, that... absolutely. I would have got back in the car the next day. I mean, that was not my fault. If it would have been a mistake of mine, I figure I'm out of my element. But I was totally in my element. I felt like I never left it. And so I told Michael, I said, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll run it. But uh, Kanan 
Tony was okay, was able to do it. I was basically an insurance card, you know, in case he was not able to qualify because he had a cracked bone on his wrist. But, you know, I was standing by absolutely. And again, it's just one of those things, but it did not deter me from uh, going back. <laughs> it's, amazing, it's just an amazing story to have a, a career like that yeah. and then for something like, like that to happen I'd urge anyone listening who hasn't seen it just to check it out online to hear Mario talking about it calmly it sounds like quite a <laughs> it, it sounds a lot less alarming than I imagine it uh, it felt from the time and certainly than it looks uh, from the outside uh, coming back just briefly to, to this year's race how do you see it shaping up obviously the Andretti cars are strong Scott Dixon's on pole there seem to be a lot of potential winners out there. It seems to be, you know, you, you can probably make a case for 14, 15 guys who on pace could win it and then a few other wild cards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you look at uh, the times, how tight the field is. I mean, except for maybe, uh, I think you look at top 25. I mean, they're right there. Uh, I'd say top 15 will be mixing it up. Uh, you never know, you know, even though these cars are quite equal, you know, somebody is just going to have something a little bit better on race day. It always happens that way. I don't predict any runaways. It's going to be uh, very busy out there, a lot of overtaking, because you can overtake here with a, with an Indy car, you can. Stock cars can't, but Indy cars do a very good job here. And, uh, and so uh, it's going to be a very animated race. I tell you, all the talent that I've seen uh, up there, they're all capable and they're all eager, very eager to get this thing done. You know, no question, it means that much. Uh, Career-wise, it's so important. And uh, every race, you know, everybody there. But for this race, it seems like uh, you have that luxury to really prepare that much longer and then you want to get it over with in style. And I guess the driver you'll be rooting for, because you wouldn't be human if you weren't, is Marco, who's he's quick round here. He's come close to winning here in the past, obviously. Mm. <laughs> there was a race in 2006, wasn't it, when Michael and Marco were both in the mix to win it. And of course, yeah. they ended up second and third, yeah. <laughs> Astonish- <laughs> astonishingly. I guess this is Indian Andretti, and that, that's what happens. But-, but, but those days are far less frustrating than the ones where, you know, Marco had a similar experience to Mario in 82 in being taken out right at the start. I think it was Mario Marias squeezed him up into the wall. And, you know, when you consider how much work goes into this race by the team, polishing and fettling and just making sure every seam is tight and, you know, the driver's head's in the game. And, uh, you know, as far as as I'm concerned, that was a a missed opportunity for, for Marco right there. And it wasn't like, some of his previous experiences because in 2011 uh, Andretti Autosport really struggled hard here and we had Ryan hunter DNQing and uh, Marco yeah. having to set a very brave lap in uh, I think just as the drizzle started to come down you know there was a lot of debate about whether to send Marco out or not but it was bump day and it was thrilling because there was more than 33 cars here and there's and uh, Marco told me later that it was one of those days where it was in the field or in the fence on those days he can kind of tell that anything can happen but he's unlikely to win but I, I still think he got a strong result that year I mean he's had two third places as well as that second place in 06 Marco's the one that says to me regularly he says that there's nowhere like this place if you had to pick a race where second place means absolutely nothing at all it's here 
Also, the other thing that I like to point out is uh, last year for the 100th, run, 100th running, I thought he was really driving a brilliant race. He was uh, sort of uh, uh, right there, six, seventh or eight, right there, ready to to go. And and yeah. it was about two. Uh, well, I think it was two uh, stops from the end where they, um, you know, the tire guy switched the front tires. Yes. I mean that that was uh, the mistake of all mistakes, which uh, was uh, can not be pardoned in any way. But uh, no. uh, anyway, um, and uh, he went out, and he thought there was obviously something broke on the car because the tire, the compound, and tire pressure, everything is different from right to left here. So, and that took him out of the running just about when it's time to obviously, obviously strike. So, yeah. uh, the poor Finally. guy, I mean, I, I felt so, so bad for him because mistakes like that, but an idiot, you know, uh, on the tires, uh, I mean, cannot be, you know, accepted yeah. in any way. And, uh, and so then you look forward and, and I, I think he, he really, he has good racecraft and, um, He's probably not the strongest qualifier, but uh, when he has to get it done, he does. But uh, he has really good racecraft, and uh, he's feeling good about it uh, out there. So one of these days, I mean, uh, it's, it's got a crack for him, you know. Yeah, a lot of people say, well, he's just so obsessed about the 500. If you're going to be obsessed about anything, be obsessed about the Indy 500. I mean, that's, it's just insane to imply that's not a good thing to be. So well, I like be. to put some things to rest <laughs> about yeah. us, you know. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, change some of that, okay, the so-called and ready curse, which I don't believe in. Well, this year's as good as any, isn't it? And certainly he's, he's going to be, yeah. be in the mix. And in terms of outside of, of the Andretti Autosport team, there's a lot of strength. Scott Dixon on, on the pole, we know how good he is around here. A driver who could have won more than once as well, so he's going to take some beating come Sunday, isn't he? Scott Dixon cannot be discounted anywhere. You know, on the Ganassi team, uh, they really have everything together. I tweeted as he's a stud. He's a real stud. I mean, I really admire him as a race driver because uh, he's good everywhere. He's really a true, versatile champion and a product of IndyCar, you know, where uh, you have these opportunities to shine you know, at, uh, you know, everywhere, you know, with all the, whatever's thrown at you. So uh, he'll be strong. You never know, as I said, you never know who will. But look at the Dale Coin cars, for instance. You know, even Ed Jones, I mean, it just, they're for real. Uh, I mean, if Bourdais didn't, didn't have that issue there, you know, he, he'd be another one. Like, so... Uh, which tells you about the team, the, you know, the, the possibilities that the smaller teams have. Penske team obviously will always be strong. Right now, they have not shown to be part of it, but they will be there fighting for sure. So it's going to be a big mix. Um, I wouldn't know. I mean, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't know where the heck to go with it, quite honestly, uh, because uh, there'll be some surprises. There always are. But... Um, uh, again, the field that is definitely, like I said, is tight. You, you can easily take top 15 for sure that are going to be out there battling like you, you've never seen. I predict that. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about Alonso coming from Formula 1 to over here. Formula 1 was a, was a huge part of your career, as well as IndyCar racing and just about every other form of racing there was. 
why was Formula One also a, a big objective for you? Formula One is what really uh, what got me uh, enamored with the sport, you know, when I was just a young lad and uh, still in Italy. And you can imagine Italy, uh, the mid-50s and so forth, or early 50s, Alberto Scotti. You had Farina, Scotti, Ferrari, Maserati, and, you know, even Alfa Romeo. You know, I was just all in. I mean, uh, my brother and I, I don't know why, but we were just captured by the racing situation. And, uh, and then we, uh, we got to see the 1954 Grand Prix of uh, Italy in Monza. That in itself, I said, oh, my God, you know, from here on, there's no plan B in my life, you know. And I have no idea how we're going to potentially get there or whatever. But Formula One was always at the forefront for me. I was in a midget in uh, about to win the third race of the day, feature of the day, which has never been done within that 24 hours uh, in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, and I was getting ready to be pushed off. And you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about Dan Gurney, who had just gotten a ride with Ferrari back in 63. So, you know, my mind was always there. When I was running midgets, ARDC midgets, which was probably the, the best midget, club uh, in the United States, uh, even better than USAC, uh, all the icons. Were. Anyway, I lobbied like hell for road racing, and we had a road race in Lime Rock. Uh, one of the top owners in, in, in midget had uh, uh, John Cooper built a rear-engine midget with an offie for uh, Mark Donahue just for that race, and he had a two-speed gearbox, and I had just in and out. So anyway, the long and the short is, all of a sudden, I'm Fonjo. And, you know, I won that race. This road racing was really what I wanted, first and foremost. Uh, the oval part, it's, it, it, U.S. style of racing, was the only way to get started. And the only way to get started was in the dirt tracks and so forth, which was fabulous. You know, I, I enjoyed to have that part of it. But even going back to 65... I'm the one that lobbied to get a, a road race into Indy cars, and they had a road race not too far away from here at Raceway Park, and I happened to win that. You know, it was the only race I won in 65 for my national championship. So uh, road racing was always in the back of my mind. 1965, Jim Clark wins. I was third, of course. We were at the banquet, and just before I said good, our goodbyes to, to Mr. Chapman, uh, I said, Colin, uh, someday I would like to do Formula One. And he said, Mario, he said, whenever you think you're ready, you call me. I was, I mean, over the moon over that. I was happier to hear that and finishing third. And that's why I embarked in, in as much road racing as I could get my hands on, you know. And it was uh, very fortunate to have the Ford Le Mans program, which was very ambitious, a lot of testing. And I really befriended uh, Bruce McLaren, and I learned a lot from him. You know, he was a very technical driver. I think I had the high speed, you know, corners pretty well nailed, but, you know, his tactics, rotating the car and the hairpins and all that, braking. And, and, and um, so I tried to learn all I could, you know, road racing. And, and I got USAC. I mean, I got USAC finally started going to Riverside to San Juit and uh, Mossport and uh, then Elkhart Lake and so forth. You know, this, this started expanding the, the, the schedule to road racing. 
And, and I love that. In 1969, for the championship, I won races uh, on a road course, super speedway, on a short oval, and even won Pikes Peak, the hill climb. On a, and I won three dirt races to boot, you know, paying points for the championship. This for one championship, you look at the different types of cars you drive, you know. So there's no other uh, series as diversified as IndyCar, you know, even in, in historically. So that was so awesome to look back as points that I earned in different cars and, and totally different. Like, uh, and what I, you know, I always said, I go from Argentina to Ducoin, Illinois. You know what I mean? It was just, uh, and <laughs> when I did my first go at Monza, when they didn't let, did not let me start, you know, because uh, when I called Colin in 68, he, uh, he said, right, I'll have a car for you the last two races, which uh, Monza and uh, Watkins Glen. And uh, so we had a test in Monza, and I actually set a record because uh, Chris Amon uh, had a uh, test with Ferrari there a week before, and I went quicker. I felt so, so right in a Formula One car because up to that point, my only experience in a single-seater was an Indy car, which was, you know, they were a bit clumsy and heavy, braking not so good, and Formula One car, oh, this is the way it is, you know, so... Um, and it fit me just right. And uh, uh, but there was uh, a, an issue. I had to. I was going for the championship that year also, so I had to come back here and race on a Saturday at the fairgrounds and at the Hoosier Hundred on the dirt. So there was a twenty-four hour rule, and uh, I we had an agreement with Bacigalupi, who was the uh, organizer in Monza, and also Count Lorani, the FIA arm of uh, in Italy. And they were going to, uh, you know, they were they were gonna uh, not apply that twenty four hour rule, just uh, defer that, and uh, and so I I got Bobby Unser a ride with the BRM so we could do some slipstreaming, and I qualified Friday morning, got on a plane, came back here, finished second to Foyt here, went back to Italy that race morning, all of a sudden um, Colin was in a meeting, there was a protest, and I think Ferrari. I can't see anybody else that would have. It was Ferrari that protested us, and uh, and that was about the rule, you know, which was, you know, they were. But I mean, that's that's flattering in a way. They wouldn't they wouldn't have bothered applying that rule if you'd been four seconds off the but base, was, right? Yeah, but I was still <laughs> seventh on the grid. Yeah, you know, and, so you uh, were a threat to yeah, Ferrari. Yeah, and the, fo- the following um, the following race was my debut at Watkins Glen, which I had never seen before. I never raced Watkins Glen. Obviously, and uh, so we put her on pole. The caveat there was Jackie Stewart next to me. There's nothing better than that, you know, because uh, you look at the, who's the yardstick at the moment. You know, there was a time when I broke into IndyCar, and uh, you know, if I won over Foyt, I won over probably the best for sure. Yeah. The time and Jackie Stewart that in those moments was he was the yardstick, and uh, just you know, just like winning South Africa, you finished second. Uh, and uh, Ontario, the you know the two yeah. heats, he finished second, both you know, which uh, I think pissed him off a little bit, but <laughs> but it was uh, you know the great satisfaction, of course. Yeah. You know, so uh, going back, Formula One was uh, you know foremost uh, and the biggest uh, and most precious goal for me, no question about it. I've always made it very clear, um, and um, 
but uh, overall I've been blessed you know I feel that uh, the opportunities that I've had to move around and and uh, cultivate you know the career uh, over here I just uh, uh, things could not have been any better for me when Michael was growing up by by that era it's a lot harder to be as diverse as as you were so uh, but he still you know raced the Porsche at Daytona with you yeah, and the uh, Le Mans, Mans, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I've never seen any hint of you wishing to do is become a, a team owner. Where where did that managerial streak come from with uh, from Michael? It's a good question, actually. Um, but um, I can tell you this, and you will probably agree. Michael was so focused on his driving that he was actually not actually enjoying life in a sense because uh, this one thing that uh, we were so different on is uh, I was focused too, but I was able to let go and look at life in a different way to enjoy the opportunities. You know, you travel the world and stay at the best hotels. That was something, and eat at the best restaurants. That's something I always did, and he never... He never would do that. He would just go where, wherever we go, you know, eat in a hotel room and so forth. And you're not going to last long, you know. He he could not have a, as long a career as I did because it was sort of a misery. And he just uh, he couldn't let go, you know. And that's why when a lot of people, when he went with McLaren in 93, they said, oh, well, you know, he's going back and forth. He's not for Don't ever question Michael's focus. Don't ever question Michael's focus. Because uh, Michael was was going to buy, he was ready to buy a, a house in Europe anyway, you know, if he was going to stay there. So the reason that I was flying back and forth, number one, we had the Concorde. Number two, I was doing, even when I was doing Formula One in earnest, you know, like in 78, I won the IROC championship on this side. And I won two USAC races because cause I was dri- driving for, uh, Roger for Roger Penske, you know, so... Um, and, but that was my business, you know. That's what yeah. I wanted to do, you know. And uh, I wasn't taking anything away from Formula One. It's just the way I wanted it, you know. I I don't hang around the shop, you know. I'm not the type of guy that you know we're there and watch mechanics work, you know. I have other things to do, you know. I'm just uh, when I go to the track, we race and uh, you know we do the thing. But uh, I'm not one to hang around, you know, the shop or anything. You're not like a micromanager. That. No, absolutely not. I mean, you have the right people uh, doing the job. And uh, and so that's why I did never even wanted to own a team. And uh, I've had plenty of opportunities, quite honestly, you know, and even to join Michael, perhaps. But uh, I have no interest. I have zero interest to today of that side of it, where Michael relishes it. And uh, as you said, where did it come from? Not from me, for sure. You know, so... But it's something that uh, now it gives him longevity in the game, of course. And it's a perfect business for him. This is strictly a business. He will do whatever uh, discipline brings an opportunity. He doesn't care what. And that's great. You know, he's very ambitious, as you can see. I mean, he's playing the limits. Uh, look what he's contributing. He's contributing uh, not just, you know, the, the, the major part of uh, IndyCar, but uh, he has a farm system, you know, with the, the Mazda. Yes. Yeah, he's got, what, he got four cars there. I mean, he's, and between all the discipline, I think he's got like uh, 12 cars running throughout the season, you know, with the Formula E. 
and that uh, you global know, the rally cross global well. running rally cross being very successful and, and yeah and uh, of course uh, Andy lights and so forth and he's building on that I I wouldn't be surprised to see him uh, sometime in the future in Formula One a la Haas you know just like right you know type of thing I mean obviously he doesn't have Haas's uh, financial means but uh, he'll find a way you know somehow and uh, if Formula One would ever go you know, with a customer car or something that maybe a team would be allowed to maybe just have one customer car. Who knows what the formula would be, but uh, sometime if uh, if you don't have, uh, you should have at least a 24-car field, in my opinion, you know, and if it's dwindling down to 2018 or something, maybe you should open that up to a customer car, allow somebody with the ambitions of a Michael Andretti to come in and, and be able to buy a Mercedes or buy a Ferrari, or buy a McLaren, or whatever, you know, is competitive, or Red Bull, and, uh, and and field its own car. I mean, if that would happen, it's happened before. I mean, it was like, of course, times change, of course, fine. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to look at logistics, too. Yep. And uh, But he would be there. So, like I said, he, he's very ambitious uh, to the maximum. And, and this is... This is the only thing we know. I mean, uh, motor racing is our life, and uh, we don't have uh, a conglomerate, something else that, uh, you know, like uh, Roger. You know, Roger Peck is a racer of all racers, too, but he has other business and other things, you know. We don't have any of those distractions, you know, and uh, we just live and breathe motor racing. Mention of, of Michael in Formula One, and I should add that anybody who thinks Formula One saw anything like the best of Michael Andretti, it didn't. No. He's a world-class driver, and I think in different circumstances he'd have flown. But one of the quirks of this race, of course, is that Michael is now running the McLaren yeah. <laughs> entry, yeah. which, I yeah. mean, that must have must have been a an, something that, that you and Michael just find quite amusing, that this has <laughs> turned around. Wouldn't have happened if Ron Dennis was there. Wouldn't have happened if Ron Dennis was there, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I don't totally fault Ron Dennis either in Michael's situation. I think that uh, Michael probably could have been a little more patient. Uh, the reason Ron Dennis hired Michael is because uh, uh, Ayrton Senna was going to, to, to Williams, and uh, but it didn't make the deal. And uh, if Michael would have been a little more patient, even though Ron Dennis, Ron Dennis didn't fire him, he just said, uh, at the moment, I cannot promise you that I'm going to renew pick up your option and uh, probably have to wait until maybe November to f- for that to happen. And what Ron Dennis, I think, was waiting for to see what Ayrton Senna was going to do because, uh, you know, he picked up Mika Hakkinen from Lotus for nothing. So he wasn't costing him anything, but he had two high-priced drivers, you know, that uh, he didn't need because he had one that was idle. So, uh, so he felt that he needed to give Mika couple of races toward the end of the season i i begged ron dennis to run him at least in monza you know kind of a you know thing and and here he, he winds up with a podium he could have had a couple other podiums earlier on there were a couple mistakes he was a little bit you know impatient but you know what uh, you look at um, uh, the way the rules were that year it was the worst possible situation with the limited amount of laps the yeah, were, uh, 23 laps all total in practice, you could not test at any of the tracks that you're going to race on and so on and so forth because uh, manicure, Michael, uh, over, 
did most overtakes during the race. You know, I think he started 18th, he finished like six or something. And uh, and they tested two days after the race, he and Ayrton, they were one-tenth apart. And it would have been front row. I mean, one front row and, and, and front first and second row in qualifying, basically. And Ayrton had a lot of respect for Michael and liked Michael, you know, because he knew. And uh, the second year for Michael would have been golden, guarantee you. And, uh, you know, not because he's my, my kid, but uh, I think Michael could, would have been absolutely, with McLaren, would have been a world champion if he would have stayed there. I don't disagree at all. I, I recall standing at the old hairpin uh, at Donington and, you know, everyone raves about uh, Ayrton's opening lap in in the wet. By the time Michael came past me, he'd just gone past Michael Schumacher and was basically making the same progress up through the field. And I seem to recall also he that was the only track on the calendar that no one had had experience of already. And he was only half a second off Senna. And we know how good Senna is. And that was Michael's, what, third Grand Prix? There was so much potential there, and it absolutely was not tapped or, or taken advantage of I was, at all. I was there at Donington, actually, because there was a rain out in Phoenix, and I came out, and uh, he was quickest in the morning in the wet. Yeah, that's and, true. Uh, yeah. And I watched him like in practice Friday, Saturday. I, I just purposely went under braking, and uh, he was as good as anybody under braking, but he was a bit... You know, he, he didn't want to let Ayrton get away from him, you know, and, and uh, he was too freaking impatient. And, uh, and Wendlinger put him off twice. He put him off there and he put him off at uh, Imola. Imola. Yeah. Imola, Michael would have had a definite podium and uh, Wendlinger put him off. So, but, okay, but you got to look at the fact that you, somebody had to see that, you know, this kid can get it done. You know what I mean? That's only his first year, first experience, and never seen these places at all. The second time around would have been another story because he's not stupid, you know. He would have settled down somewhat. I mean, he made, you know, a big mistake at the start of Silverstone and also in uh, Rio, I mean, in uh, in Brazil. You know, okay, all right. But uh, at the same time, you got to look at the other side. To me, when I look at the value of a driver, you know, I, I see the the bright side, the potential that's that's there. You know, all you have to do, if you know that that individual can reach that level, you know that that's, you know, once he polishes everything up, he's going to be there. Yep. You know, so... Uh, I think uh, also that, uh, yeah, one of the great things about when he came back with uh, Chip, Chip Ganassi racing is not only the fact that he won first time out and scored Reynard's first win in IndyCar, but I like the fact that, uh, you know, one of the first people to congratulate him was Mr. Senna, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that was that was just a phenomenal day because we had Nigel trying to intimidate him because uh, the race had to be restarted and there was Nigel trying to intimidate him, Nigel Mansell trying to intimidate him on the grid beforehand saying, we don't want any first lap shunts here, Sonny. And then uh, Michael passed him around the outside and disappeared. <laughs> but actually looking at, Andretti's success in Formula 1. We haven't talked about 1978 yet. That was a pretty big year, I guess you could say. Uh, winning the World Championship in the, the Lotus 79 for most of the season. I mean, what was that experience like? What was that car like? I guess when you realised how strong the, the 79 was after you'd moved into it, you thought, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. Oh, I, I love both uh, the 78 and 79. I think uh, 
A lot of people don't realize that uh, I think 78 would have been a much easier year for me to win the championship um, because uh, uh, there were some other issues with the 79, which is primarily breaking. Uh, and uh, we fought the entire season with Colin because uh, this uh, had inboard rear brakes. And uh, uh, to be able to have a better flow, you know, from the underside, uh, Colin decided to uh, to bring the uh, calipers, everything closer to the gearbox, and actually half of the caliper was magnesium, which was part of the gearbox. So all of the heat from the gearbox was going into the caliper. We were boiling the fluid. So the very first race, actually, that I did in Belgium where I won uh, with the prototype 79, I was out of brakes, technically. I mean... You pump, you could pump it, you know, whenever the f fluid boils, you can pump and get the brakes again. But every braking was pumping, and it was like that the entire season. Uh, and uh, and you, would, you would not believe it because, uh, you know, in those days, obviously, you didn't have telemetry or anything like that. So as soon as you stop the car, you give it a pump, pedal is there. So, it's, you know, it's, I could not con we could not convince him. And, uh, you know, he was not arguing with so much, but, uh, uh, you know, Ronnie would try to say it, and he would get down on Ronnie. I mean, the way he would uh, be so ugly, you know, with poor Ronnie was just uh, uh, pitiful to watch, quite honestly. And, in fact, at one time, you know, Colin even said to me, I, I, I'm sorry you saw that side of me. I said, if you ever showed that side to me, I said, I don't think that it's going to fly very well, you know, because he showed no respect for him. But... Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, he was, uh, Colin was wonderful in every way to work for and, and, you know, for everything he stood for. But he didn't like too much, too many suggestions, technical suggestions from the drivers. He didn't. And, uh, and unfortunately, I have a big mouth and, uh, and now I have ideas. And sometimes, I, you know, I was, I was pretty much of a thorn on his side at times. And, uh, uh, that is, you know, basically about the flexing of the chassis and everything else, you know. But anyway, but uh, all in all, as I say, uh, going back to uh, 79-2, I mean, it was uh, a fabulous, fabulous year, of course. You know, um, uh, my dream was had come true, you know. Uh, in the worst possible scenario, obviously, with Monza, you know, uh, with Ronnie, but... Um, you know, I love Ronnie. I love uh, Gunnar Nielsen. You know, as uh, teammates, you know, we were good friends, good friend on, in earnest. You know, and you don't always say that about your teammate. You know, so uh, it was fun time, and uh, just uh, under the, you know, everything was right until you know the very end. I I wanted to uh, ask you how often you think about 1977. And uh, how <laughs> how many uh, other wins you you could have got that year? Because you won more than anyone. You scored four wins uh, that year. And quite honestly, I think that uh, not only do I actually prefer that car looks wise as well, uh, but I I think you should have got two titles on the trot easy. David, absolutely. I tell you, you look at there's uh, two races that uh, I ran out of fuel. And one, South Africa, I'm on pole, and, uh, and the lads put a uh, little extra fuel there because I asked them to. 
And, uh, and Colin found out, and he pulled. He sucked a gallon on the grid. And I, kiddingly, I said, Colin, if I, you know, if I run out, if I'm leading, I run out, this, I said, I'm going to have your hide. You know, he laughed. And sure enough, you know, leading the race, two laps to go, and that would have been a championship in itself. Uh, we're in Sweden, and uh, somehow the uh, metering unit on the, uh, in the V of the car went to full rich. You know, just one of those crazy things, you know, had a snap thing, you know, it went to full rich. And I could tell, obviously, because, you know, the short, you know, on the uh, slow corner, the thing, you know. And uh, so I figure, uh-oh. So I'm full rich. There's no way I'm going to finish. So I just, I built, uh, I think it was a 29-second lead over, um, uh, I think it was f- French. I think it was Lafitte, wasn't it? Yeah, I said Lafitte, over yeah. Lafitte. And, um, and, uh, and I kept pointing. You know, we had no radio, obviously. Yeah. Kept pointing for a few, and they had no idea. They had big question mark on the board. And I'm thinking, few, you know, like I'm thinking, you know. And I thought that maybe they have some fuel there. And uh, sure enough, the things like, you know, the fuel pressure started going down. I, I pit it, and they had no fuel there. So by the time, so I was classified sixth. And then the other one that uh, I was at Mossport, I was, I had a lap on Jody Schechter, a lap on Jody Schechter with three laps to go. Yeah. And my, all pressure was fluctuating because Cosworth decided to uh, use one uh, one ring only uh, on the pistons, you know. So there was, I don't know if it was an oil ring or something, and I had so much oil consumption that, uh, you know, I just ran out of oil. And I tried to, I tried to just really baby it, baby on the last lap, you know, Mossport, the straightaways uphill. Yeah. And I was just trying not to really, you know, and I let Jody unlap himself and everything. And, I, and I'm just easy, easy, and I was like, scattered. Yeah. And I coasted in, you know, I didn't never cross the line, but there again, I was uh, classified six. So there was, these are the ones that actually come to mind, you know, like yeah. for one liter of fuel when I won the championship. It was funny, like on the on the way to South Africa one time. You know, it seemed like a long, long trip, and I I jotted down. I said, um, "What would one gallon of fuel have meant to me at that point in my career? It would have meant a world championship, two national championships, and in this and you know and races to go with it. One gallon of fuel." Well, I just got to show the amount you did win. <laughs> there was so much more, more left on the table. I just wanted to ask you about some of the guys you raced against in Formula One. Who were the, who were the ones that you rated the highest that you battled with? Who were the ones that were difficult to race against? I just sprung to mind when you were talking about seventy seven. Was obviously you had the battle with Hunter at Zandvoort, where you weren't particularly happy with him. But well, who, who were the, the tough guys to race against in Formula One? I didn't. I don't think I had any problem with anybody per se. I mean, but. Uh, I mean, uh, the usual suspects, you know, are there of the time. I mean, who were they? I mean, uh, with me, uh, uh, I had to worry about my teammates. And uh, and then it was always, you know, Lauda. And uh, early on, you know, who were the top? I mean, uh, James, uh, you know, we uh, we had some uh, uh, 
we didn't some disagreements, you know, obviously on what was going on. But uh, I think the following year, uh, Carlos Reutemann and I had a really a good go at uh, in Zandvoort, and uh, and I passed him, and then he passed me the same way. So uh, it was very, very well. Then it was such a great dice that we had, and then I had an engine issue. I didn't finish, but he and I had really a nice fight in earnest. You know, Carlos Reutemann was really um, a very interesting driver. You know, in many ways, uh, um, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, but if you just mention names, I can probably uh, comment on it. Villeneuve. Jody was always, Louder. you know, he was he was there. He was uh, uh, very quick and, and um, unpredictable in some ways, you know, but uh, uh, he, was, he was a smart driver. Um, and uh, any given day, he was as quick as anyone, yeah. you know. Um, who else? Yeah, we uh, well, uh, Nicky Louder, of course. Nicky, of course. I mean, I was there, and Nicky's as good as you could be, you know. What uh, were they like to race again? Because today, you know, there has to be a lot of trust uh, between IndyCar drivers to run side by side, whereas their counterparts in Formula One, I don't get the impression there is that much uh, respect. They'll, they'll willingly drive you, uh, you know, usher you off the, the track. But in uh, IndyCar in the 70s, presumably, again, the stakes were high in terms of not wanting to uh, put themselves out. But in Formula One, I get the impression that it was a, a lot more gentlemanly. I mean, I remember uh, reading about how completely unusual it was for when uh, Ricardo Patrese was blocking uh, Ronnie Peters and you know, like everyone howled in protest because it hadn't, it hadn't been seen before, uh, you know, blocking uh, manoeuvres. Was was there uh, was there the same respect among uh, IndyCar drivers in the seventies about not you know running each other off the road and that kind of thing? Well, I think it is because uh, you know here's the other thing: uh, every driver's meeting, uh, you have to look at each other. You know, yeah. whatever happened the last time, and and if you have any pride at all, I mean, uh, you know, you're not going to be stupid, uh, you know, and and if you've done something, uh, you know, or if you you know, if you uh, if you're tr- trying to uh, even the score, that's something different, you know. But uh, uh, quite honestly, I mean, I I've done wrong to others, you know, and and you know, I don't think uh, in my whole life that I ever crashed anybody because I wanted to, you know. That would have been stupid too, you know. So uh, and you just protect yourself. Uh, if I cut. You know, many people off, and so yeah, no kidding. You know, but I've, a lot of it has done been done to me as well. Um, some of it is legitimate, some of it is not. But you know, when you're in tight competition and so forth, uh, those things are going to happen. You can't just dwell on it so much. If it's a, if it's a habit, something that keeps happening, like uh, you know, like uh, when Cheever, Cheever, uh, I think Cheever managed to crash Michael. Marco and myself at least once. So that one we had, that I had a, an issue with. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I never I had an issue. Marco off at Watkins Glen in yeah, when he, and his, yeah. Yes, it, it was a lapping situation. He was, yeah. Michael was, Marco was, was going to win his second race, you know, in his first year. 
and he would, you know, and uh, here we go, and, and he cried. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was so blatant that I couldn't even believe it. It almost like you look at the mirror, okay, I'm going to put him off. And uh, and uh, I'm sorry, that's the way I feel. That's uh, He's done that. He's done that to me, and um, so, but I never had any problem with anybody else that I know like that. Right. He's the only one. But why Why now does there seem to be a tendency in uh, Formula One, like we get all those, uh, well, and, and IndyCar, why, uh, you know, incident between so-and-so and so-and-so being investigated? Is it because the TV cameras can track all around the whole lap these days, or... Is it because there is a general breed of indiscipline between open wheel races now? I'll I, I tell you what, uh, David, at this level, I cannot believe, you know, they have all of these um, uh, officials uh, just uh, throwing out these penalties. Uh, just the most recent, uh, uh, you know, okay, it's Marco, but, you know, at the Grand Prix here, you know, where he ran into Canaan, and, and, and he gets... Uh, drive-through for avoidable contact. And Marco said, if it was avoidable, I would have avoided it. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, you don't hit somebody with a wing, you know, because it's going to break your wing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it's tight. You know, it's a tight situation. And, and these guys up there, and, and a lot of, most of them are ex-race drivers. Well, yeah, it's avoidable contact, so you're going to give him a drive-through, so you blow the whole race for the guy. And, uh, and I've seen that sometime, I think they're, uh, sort of releasing it a little bit in Formula One, but it was, uh, it was getting ridiculous. Yeah. What is this? I mean, uh, are these b beginners or something? I mean, this is <laughs> the top professionals in motorsports and, and you're going to penalize them for some uh, idiotic thing. Now, if it's something that's so, I mean, uh, obvious, uh, it's, uh, uh then it's it's different, you know. If it's uh, very dangerous and obvious and and looks very blatant, yes, yes. But you know, uh, when it's in the heat of things and you're all trying to do, you know, come on, let, let them play. <laughs> you know, that's the way I look at it, anyway. While we're talking Formula One, one thing I can't not ask you about is Monza '82. Obviously, coming back and getting the pole position. Like people who were there that day saying that that's just the greatest day at Monza with everything that had been happening with Ferrari, you coming back, putting it on pole. I mean, how do you remember that? Obviously, you won the Italian Grand Prix in 77, and that must be a very special memory for you given given your background. But how does that pole position stack up, and what did that feel like? Well, uh, you know, Unofficially, you won it in 78 as well. Yeah, well, anyway, yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, it was tough to give that one up. But yeah, it's to me, uh, it, it was so proper uh, that under the worst circumstances, of course, that I was able to uh, have the opportunity to, uh, to drive a Ferrari as my last go, you know, in Formula One. And, uh, and yeah, I had never, obviously, uh, I had never driven a turbo car at the time. So I was very curious, you know, as to how that was going to go. And uh, it was interesting that um, uh, they promised me uh, a day of testing on a Sunday before. And so I arrived there s Saturday morning. I arrived there probably uh, maybe around 9.30, 10 o'clock. And uh, so we um, got fitted up in a car. Then we had a luncheon with uh, Mr. Ferrari at the Cavallino. And then uh, 
uh, they said, well, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, can we do some running today? They said, well, you know, rest. I said, I'm rested, you know. And uh, because, uh, you know, I was all fitted and everything. And I ran 87 laps that afternoon, and then we broke the track record with the qualifying, you know, the engine, you know, just. And, uh, and uh, so I said, uh, give the mechanics day off tomorrow. And uh, I got a Moto Guzzi, and I went up the Abatona with my wife. We took a nice ride, you know, and motorcycle, and I was ready to go. And and when I got to to Monza, you know, just things, you know, felt good to me. And and it was really coming down to the last strokes. With um, it was Nelson. It was he, he and I were pretty much going at it uh, at the time. And and I was making some of my famous adjustments, you know, with the Ackerman and so forth. And and uh, and just all of what was getting me where I wanted to be, you know, and uh, and actually some of the uh, um, the mechanics they didn't did not understand what I was making because uh, I was shortening and lengthening the, uh, the steering rods to give one side or the other more Ackerman, and and that used to work so peachy for me, you know, on a, just the, the finest adjustments. And that's what put me on pole. That was just enough to just give me that. And uh, and so, again, you know, just very, very satisfying. And and in the race, I, I blew the start. You know, I I did a couple of, uh, practice starts uh, just on the uh, just on past the Ascari. I would pull to the left, and and then they told me, oh, you can't do that. You know, so uh, uh, so I didn't have much practice on starts, and. Uh, and so, but then I, I took the lead and I, I thought I was going to win. And then uh, something happened to the left turbo and uh, I was getting stick and throttle. And and so anyway, there was, uh, I got past, I finished third, but it was still a very satisfying podium, you know, at that point. Um, but there was, uh, I just loved that. That was probably turning out to be probably uh, as a sh- on a short, period like that one of my favorite formula one cars because of the power yeah yeah and then uh for your final race in in vegas i know everyone mocks that track but it was pretty demanding for turbo cars uh, around uh, that parking lot <laughs> and you out qualified uh, your teammate patrick tombay again well in vegas for some we could not put power down and then we had incredible vibration which actually, uh, I experienced that with the Alpha the year before, you know, and I don't know why, but uh, uh, that's because the, it was so tight, the circuit there around, you know, it was such a terrible circuit, quite honestly. And it just, just wasn't right, but uh, we just couldn't get the power down. And, um, and so you had lower gear, and, and you get so much wheel spin, and the thing was, oh, big vibration. That's where ultimately broke my uh, wishbone. I oh, broke, was it? I broke rear wishbones on both, the right wishbone on the Ferrari and the Alpha. And um, so what was happening, we had to go to uh, taller gear, you know, but then the response on that turbo, you yeah. know, was just not, non-existent. Yes. So it was the either, either had a big explosion or you then so the track was so unsuited for that 
type of an engine. Uh, we would have done better there with a normally aspirated engine. And uh, that was a problem. I never felt that I, I could really uh, get on top of it. I wanted to ask you about some of the bad cars you around here and how tough it was trying to get a fast time out of a McNamara or whatever. Going back to some of uh, you know the, the cars like the McNamara, as you said, um, it falls into the category of, uh, of really uh, reaching out for like uh, that unfair advantage somewhere or something. And uh, I was always fascinated by trying to, and uh, Granatelli would go along with it, of course, you know. But um, having something that nobody else has, you know, McNamara was only, only going to be for us. And, uh, and you know, it doesn't always work out like that. Like I said, that child was totally cross-eyed. I've had those, you know, all of those uh, moments with, um, you know, with even, uh, you know, Morris Philippe was a brilliant, brilliant design in every way. But uh, uh, when he came here and tried to do the job, it was just, uh, he was out of his element. And, uh, and we suffered that part. So, uh, again, yeah, we go back uh, to several years where things were pretty pretty meager, pretty skinny. You know, it was just a, quite a fight, even with the Parnellis, you know. We had some good results, but then but there was uh, really difficult times in getting uh, the cars because uh, the, the, in those moments, the Eagles were actually dominating, if I remember, and they were... Uh, Dan was really doing the job right and was really difficult to, you know, to compete in uh, that level, mainly because, you know, we just, uh, there was there were things being done to these cars that, uh, you know, were not understood quite properly, you know, so. Yeah, it's interesting how people do kind of like underestimate the demands of the Speedway being so different from European. I mean, your first uh, Lola here in 1983, oh, God, I mean, yeah. that just looked like a giant Formula 3 car, even in pictures. It didn't look like it was ready to uh, be going 220. No, I mean, uh, this is... Uh, uh, Eric Brawley at the time did not have the full grasp of ground effects. And he done... It, he, he was more, you know, on the uh, mechanical side of the car, and those are the dynamics that really interested him. And and uh, he was just driving me crazy here because, uh, you know, he was just changing roll centers and so forth. And we, at that point, we just needed more aerodynamic downforce, which we didn't have. But what's really interesting, though, that uh, uh, this was in 1983, I Three, think, yeah. here. And actually, as the season went on, it was like uh, the Lotus 76. Um, we we got it better and better. Yes. In fact, that car actually, toward the end of the season, was really quite quite nice to drive. Yeah, and you got We finished two the wins. championship. And I remember we were testing at um, Elkar Lake, and uh, uh, Michael was there. He was going to... You know, oh, right, okay, yeah. yeah In was, 83, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I let him... I let him uh, drive my car just for a few laps. He went in there, and, and uh, the car was so good because I won the race the following, you know, uh, week or something that we ran. The car was so good there, uh, and especially in the slow corner. Just you could carry speed. And I said, Michael, I said, uh, just remember, I says, uh, now when you get in, in the car, when you're going to be the driver for whatever team you're going to be with, just remember what feels good. And just always strive for that. 
And that was so perfect for him to get that feel because he said, oh, man, he said, Dad, that, that wasn't that hard. And he kept going faster and faster and faster, you know. So uh, I'm so glad that he had that experience. It was very positive. Talking of the feel of a car, of all the ones you drive, is there one that stands out? Yeah, there was. Uh, I'll go back to, uh, like you said, the, the, the Lotus 77 is a car that could really talk to me. Uh, there was, um, and uh, and those are the cars that you fall in love with. Uh, and the other, the the uh, couple of the Formula Five Thousand Lolas that I had, for some reason, were really right. I really understood those cars, and the, everything that I I knew what to do and and how to really tune it to to what I needed. And uh, and you fall in love with those cars because. You can't wait to get back in it because you know you're going to be quick and, and all that. And uh, um, I mean, it's Lotus 79 too, but it used to piss me off about the brakes. You know, like uh, we were flying at the Glen, for instance, uh, and and we were much quicker than Ferrari. And, and Carlos Reutemann could outbreak me so badly, you know, and, you know, places where the brakes are really, you know, uh, <laughs> premier, you know, you have to have. Um, and, um, but... Um, you know the cars that usually you won races with; those are the ones that you know you fall in love with, and and the two that I'm just mentioning for some reason, and uh, the uh, the three twelve Ferrari sports cars Darn. was really and and also my three twelve uh, the Formula One car of uh, of seven the seventy one. There was something about that car too that it was really balanced. It was uh, it didn't have there was. Uh, never any wild understeer, oversteer. There was a lot of good balance to it. And I, that car was talking to me, too. And uh, I remember even thinking I was uh, actually at, at Ontario, uh, where, I mean, uh, <laughs> at Ontario, I, um, I, I hit the wall with that car and practiced Lothar Mochenbacher and a form of a time sort of uh, put me off. I, I guess he didn't know I was there, but uh, into the dirt. And I just hit the wall on the right side. And uh, so I couldn't qualify for the, for the race, for the first race. And, uh, and because I had to leave, I had to go to, um, uh, I had to race in Phoenix that Saturday. So the, I only did the Friday thing. So I started last. And the race was two heats at, at uh, Ontario. And uh, so I had to come through the pack, and then, uh, but the car was so right, and and I wanted, but I, while I was driving, especially on the second one, a right-hander just before the straightaway, it was like very difficult. But the, I was carrying so much speed right on it, and I said, "Man, couldn't get any better," you know. So it did things like that that. Uh, that <laughs> I knew you weren't going to name mind. the honker among your favorite cars. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I think Len Terry had a bad dream when he, when he, <laughs> when he designed that one. <laughs> yeah. No, that was, uh, it, it looked beautiful, but yeah. We've been talking for quite a long time, so we're going to have to let, uh, I think, Mario get on fairly shortly. But just one last question, coming back to where we started with Fernando Alonso. I'm sure you're going to speak to him on race day, obviously. If there's one piece of advice you'd give to him or indeed any driver who's about to take part in the Indy 500, and try and go for victory. Is there, is there one piece of one piece of advice, one sentence that they can drive like Mario Andretti if they listen to and understand? Well, don't don't beat my grandson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said it. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I wish I had that magic wand. I don't think there's one piece you do. The only thing I always say to them, just enjoy it, have fun doing it. They know what to do. Uh, and and he knows what to do. Well, from listening to you talk, it's certainly clear you very much enjoyed your career, probably yeah, almost as indeed. much as those of us who had the, the privilege to watch it. Or... Absolutely. So thanks very much, Mario Andretti, for giving us so much of your time and so many stories. There were thousands of other things we could have asked you. We've rambled on enough. <laughs> no, no, you haven't as far as I'm concerned, but there's only so much time, time we could take up of yours. Thank you also for David Malsha for your insights. My honour. Exactly. I feel exactly the same way, and I imagine those listening will say the same. So thanks very much for listening. Obviously, check out autosport.com, motorsport.com. Autosport magazine out on Thursday for all the coverage, not just of the Indy 500 and the and the build-up and the race reports, but also of all the rest of motor racing. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.